It's a real joy to, uh, to have another guest speaker this, uh, this morning. We have uh, Michael Grisanti. Um, he, he prefers to be called Mike. I, I don't call him that. Uh, I call him Dr. G because that just sounds really hip. Dr. G. So Dr. G, he is a professor uh, at the Master's Seminary. Um, he is the department chair there of Old Testament. And so, you know, I, I can brag on Dr. G because he's got a lot of contributions and Bible dictionaries and handbooks and commentaries. He's got one working on Deuteronomy right now that will, will be out um, eventually. So I'm thankful for the scholarly side of Dr. G. But more important than all of his accolades uh, is that he is a married man to Martha Ann, and he talks about her frequently, like they just got married. There's over 40 years, yeah, 42 years. He's got a, an army of a family. He's got eight kids. And so I, I made sure that I wrote them down because I was like David, and you've got um, Joshua and Caleb, and you have... Um, David and Jonathan and Goliath and Meshibosheth and <laughs> no, Mar it's Mike, Mark, um, Trisanna, David, Jonathan, Joshua, Caleb, and Teresa, and five with one more on the way, six grandkids. So yeah, Do Dr. G is a family man. Uh, I've known uh, Dr. Grisanti, it's, it's probably 20 years now. His, um, his son, his oldest son played on the Masters basketball team with me. So when I was a senior, he was a freshman. Mike is a big, towering 6'8 six, six, stud. And I just remember early on, um, even before the basketball games and after, talking to Dr. Grisanti and just trying to get some nuggets of wisdom from him because he's such a godly man. Uh, he loves the Lord. He loves his wife. He loves his family. So just kind of observing from afar, seeing his gentle spirits. He's, he's a big, big guy, but he's such a teddy bear, and uh, the last uh, couple days I've had an opportunity just to have him with the family and have him with us during our devotion times, and he's answering all of my kids' Bible questions, and it's just been fantastic. So it's a real special treat to, to have him here with us, and um, I just uh, want you to, to come and say hello to him. Uh, I don't know that you'll meet a, a guy who is so intellectually astute and yet such a humble and loving and godly dude. So, Dr. Rasani, would you please come up and uh, bring us the word this morning? Yeah, it's, it's a great blessing to be here. I do bring greetings from my wife and kids. Uh, not everybody's right at home, but they're praying for my time here and grateful for their role in my life. And, you know, part of the joy of being a seminary prof is that God allowed you to have a small part of guys' lives who God uses in significant ways. So that intersects with Dom through basketball and seeing Dom and Jess flourish as a couple and having them in the church where I was an elder for a time and just watching him along the way, hoping to come up sometime. And just we finally worked out the opportunity. I'm thankful because I love local churches, lighthouses in different parts of the world, that are trying to be a, an impact in bringing both the gospel and his word to bear in a dark place, a needy world. And so praise God for you. Grateful for bodies of believers that uh, long to do what we're talking about in the sermon today, represent him, represent our great God well. I do, uh, Dom asked me to mention this. Uh, I, I, uh, one of the things I do is I lead Israel trips, four to six a year. And um, I tell people it's not to get away from my wife at all. It's, uh, I'm convinced that we can understand our Bible better by knowing the context of the Bible, connecting it with the land of the Bible, because it's going to turn lights on in places and distances and customs and practices. And so I'll send Pastor Dama a file that says what you need to think about if you're going to put together a trip and and we'll just talk about it. So I, it could be a church trip. It could be a couple church trips together, a couple churches together, whatever. It's a study trip, not a tourist trip. But it isn't like an obscure, irrelevant study trip. It's trying to help, again, understand Scripture. So I'd love to have you guys on one of those. And so in God's providence, we trust him. 
So when you think about uh, what's, what's on my heart today, you see in your outline or your, your bulletin, I'm asking who should we represent. We're going to start in Genesis 1. You can turn there if you want to. We'll be there in a moment. Let me just kind of set the stage for what's on my heart. Almost every year, some kind of a election takes place, and we're especially aware of this because just around the corner in a couple of weeks, we're going to have local and national elections. In those elections, we have a chance to elect officials who serve in local, state, or federal government. And when this happens, we normally vote for a, a candidate, for someone who has a collection of beliefs or opinions that are like our own. When we vote for that individual, we're kind of commissioning him or her to represent us in a certain area of government. Our hope is that when a certain bill comes across their desk, they're going to vote in a manner that's representative of, the, of our beliefs and the things they shared as their platform during the campaign. So here's an example. Let's say you and I vote for a U.S. senator who affirms a strong opposition to abortion in his campaign for office. And you vote for that candidate, at least in part, along with some other things, because of their stand on the issue of abortion. What would you think if when that, that, that senator faces a bill that will encourage the federal funding of abortion, he votes, he or she votes in favor of that bill? Well, did they represent your beliefs very well at that moment? Well, no, they didn't. In fact, you may not want to vote for them again because of that, not representing your views in light of what they campaigned on. So that illustration brings me to the burden on my heart for this morning. In a more ultimate sense, my question, who is it that we represent, relates to our function in life as Christ followers. Who do we represent? Who are we putting on display through our lives, our conduct, our value system, our hard attitudes? Is every person on earth represents somebody? In the biggest picture possible, we either represent God or devil, the devil. And, and, and the reality is that we all that we all are born as sinners, left to ourselves. We would carry out the agenda of Satan and represent him. But praise God, many of you profess this totally. He sent his son, Jesus Christ, so that we don't have to remain in our spiritual darkness. Jesus Christ died on the cross of Calvary in our place. He paid the penalty for our sin, for our benefit. And as a perfect God and sinless man, Jesus Christ's death provides the basis for our treasured forgiveness. And when we accept God's perfect gift of salvation, there's a transformation, a tremendous change that takes place in our lives. When we receive his forgiveness provided by the means of Christ's death on the cross, we become part of God's family. No longer do we represent Satan, but we're given the privilege of representing the one and only true God. Paul writes in Colossians 1, 13 and 14, he has rescued us from the domain of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of the Son he loves, we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins in him. Praise God. That's great. When we become Christians, we become God's ambassadors. For 2 Corinthians 5, 17 and 20, Paul also writes, Therefore, if anyone is a new creature in Christ, he's a new creation. The old is gone, the new has come. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors. So in light of that glorious reality of the salvation that God has provided for us through Christ, transforming our hearts, taking our feet out of the miry clay and setting them upon a rock, which is amazing, I'm asking you and me a big question. How are we doing as Christ followers carrying out this command to represent God well? To put him on display. So you have, I don't know if it's in your, your outline there, but the key, the key idea I provided is that at the pinnacle of, of his creation and as members of the body of Christ, we're humanity, we're going to go to Genesis 1, we're going to end with 2, 1 Peter 2. As the pinnacle of his creation, humanity, and as members of the body of Christ, God intends that each of his followers live out and proclaim his character and salvation before the world. To advertise who he is to make him big, to glorify him. The Lord desires that we represent him faithfully and accurately as we live out our lives. Since the Old Testament provides the pattern for this idea of representation, we're going to start there. We'll consider what God expects of humanity in general, Genesis 1, and then of Israel, Genesis 12, Exodus 19, 
and then what God expects of the church, 1 Peter 2. And this divine expectation of Christ followers representing their awesome God is a truth that permeates the entire Bible. And that's part of the reason I want to emphasize this is if it's in the, from stem to stern, from beginning to end, that God created mankind and intends his people to represent him before each other, before the watching world, we have to take note. And we have to ask, am I living that out? So you'd all agree with me that we serve a stupendous and amazing and incomparable God. Since that's totally true, this is the challengeable force. Are we living in a way to make him big in our world? Is faithfully representing our God to each other and the surrounding world, a driving passion of our lives. Now, I realize this is not rocket science. It's the first time you've heard this call to represent him. The problem is, is the same problem I face. My default setting isn't to embrace that passion in a way that affects the way I live. I have to keep it before me. And at the end, I'll tell you how I try to do that. But let's start with Genesis 1, God's desire for humanity. We're going to look at verses 26 and 27 in particular. But let me just summarize the lead up to 26 and 27. In Genesis 1, after speaking the heavens and earth into existence, the Lord prepared the earth for habitation. On the first three days of the creative week, he created light. And the atmosphere around the earth, he caused fertile land to appear and causing all the water to be gathered into one large ocean. After the third day of creation, heaven and earth lay in stillness. All was ready for him being filling it. There's a wide and empty expanse of the heavens, the skies, the land overgrown with the vegetation, the vast oceans, all lay empty, capable of supporting life. On the fourth to sixth days of creation, the Lord filled his handiwork. He placed a number of heavenly bodies in space and filled the sky with birds and the sea with fish and, anim- and mammals. On the sixth day, he spoke into existence all sorts of animals to inhabit the land. Finally, as part of day six, he spoke into existence. He formed, sorry, he formed a human being, Adam, as the pinnacle of his creative work. Like the animals, Adam was formed from the ground, given provision of food, blessed with fruitfulness. But God has special intentions for humanity. Look at verse 26. Now, according to most translations, you would read this verse. Then God said, let us make man in our image according to our likeness. Now, I'm going to suggest that the, the translate it a little differently. I would translate it, let us make man as our image according to our likeness. So in the second part of that expression, according to our likeness, the Lord is indeed affirming that there's a certain degree of likeness between God and humankind that sets humankind apart from the rest of creation, plants, animals, and so on. Our personhood, our rational thought processes, our eternal life principle, our capacity of of fellowship with God all set us apart from the animal world. However, in the first part of that expression, as our image, the Lord is not just saying, as important as that is, that man is in or according to the image of God. I think he's saying that man is. He created mankind to be the image of God. So the expression, let us make man as our image according to our likeness, is not simply a statement of essence, according to the image of God, having all those things that set us apart from the animal world, that are part of God's intention for humanity to be a tool in his hands to impact that created world. It's also a statement of function. The Lord isn't simply saying what mankind is like, but what he's to be and to do as our image. He created mankind to function as his image bearers. And this is right at the beginning, right? I mean, he creates mankind and bam, this is his intention. As our image according to our likeness, human life is divinely intended to be a reflection of God's nature and his person. Let me illustrate it this way. In the ancient Eastern world, pagan kings would normally erect statues of themselves throughout the boundaries of their land. Why? Put to demonstrate 
who's in charge, to demonstrate the sovereign extent of their domain, to point to this ruler. Each statue was to direct the attention of the people to the supreme ruler. It served to remind the king's subject that he's in charge. Another tool that accomplished this later in history, 400 B.C. and on, was metal coins. And guess whose image was on those coins in various regions of the world? Yeah, the king. Because it was to point to him. He's the boss. He's in charge. It's his domain. Now, those statues and coins represented the ruler of a given region of the world. In a similar fashion, God, this awesome, incomparable, surpassing character God, has established us as his representatives on earth. He wants our lives to point to him. And he delineates a key part of the image-bearing function in the rest of verse 26 when he says, and let them have dominion over all of my creation. He lists all the elements of the creation in the end of verse 26. His point here is, is he's declaring that he created mankind as God's image in order to represent him as sovereign ruler, the one who's in charge over all the areas of creation. This is also pointing to the fact that he intends to establish his kingdom on earth at a time of his choosing, but The point I want to emphasize here is that from the moment of God's creation of man, God intended that human beings, men and women, function as his representatives on earth. Humanity's role as God's representatives was meant to impact the surrounding world, both near and far. Each person was meant to be emblematic of God's sovereignty and manifest God's character in their dealings with each other and the rest of creation. So that's, that makes it pretty important and pretty essential, core value. And we know that after, shortly after creation, Genesis 3, those divine intentions were frustrated, if you will. Adam and Eve sinned in the Garden of Eden, interrupted the accomplishment of those purposes, humanly speaking. Once sin entered the human race, it became necessary for an individual to be reconciled with God before they could effectively function as his representative. And praise God, the Lord in Genesis 3 points out that he's going to provide a he who will bring eternal resolution to our sin, who's going to be the one who crushes Satan's head and his heel will be bruised or crushed. So so besides receiving salvation, we're seeing here that there's an ongoing expectation of God that his people would represent him. And of course, they can only do that as redeemed individuals. So what was God's desire for mankind? to serve as his representatives, to make him big, to glorify him before each other in the watching world. Let's move on to God's desire for Israel. We'll jump to Genesis 12 just for a second. Because when the transition from Genesis 11 to Genesis 12 was from the massive wide-angle lens, all of the universe, to one guy, Abraham, and God's workings through Abraham and his descendants. So from Genesis 12 onward, the the descendants of Abraham enjoyed a special relationship with the Lord. This intimate relationship grows out of a covenant that God made with Abraham. He chose, he's in charge, he's bringing his will to pass. And in that covenant, the Lord promises to give Israel a land to make them into a, there will be a national home, give them a nation, form them into a nation. He reaffirms that to Abraham, Isaac, and to Jacob, tends to bless them abundantly, We learn a lot about what God intends to provide for, to do for his chosen people. We only get little glimpses here about what he wants to do through him, but them. But think about the in verse 3 of Genesis 12, we we get a, a clue of what is their relationship to be to the rest of the world. Genesis 12, 3 says that Abraham's descendants in them, all the families of the earth will be blessed. So the, 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 the central idea here is the Lord intends to impact the world through Abraham and his descendants. And I would agree with you totally that involves the provision of the Messiah through a, a Jewish mom and dad. It's giving the majority of his word through Jewish prophets. But part of that impact of that world is through those who have forgiven sins from an eternal God predicated on the coming or the, the, the death of Christ are going to bless that world through pointing to this awesome God, drawing the lost to that salvation, encouraging fellow believers to live lives for his glory. So move, moving on, 
We, uh, just a quick transition here away from Genesis. We have Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. They, they go down to Egypt. In God's providence, uh, they're in the lap of luxury for a time. There arises a pharaoh who doesn't know Joseph. And at least Joseph didn't make a difference to his decision-making, and he had a chance of having this big crowd of people be slaves, made them slaves, and for a couple hundred years, they're under bondage. And God raises up Moses, as people cry, the, the Israelites, the Hebrews are crying out to God for deliverance, raises up Moses, and there's a whole account about what happens to Moses. He comes back with Aaron, and he comes before the Pharaoh, and he says to the Pharaoh, let the people of Yahweh go. And the Pharaoh says, who's he? You know, I've heard of this God, that God, the other God, but Yahweh's a nobody. Why, I don't want to act. Why is that compelling to me? Well, what does the Lord do? He introduces himself. Ten plagues. <laughs> oh, that's who Yahweh is. The most powerful God of the universe. The one who has total control over every realm of creation. And God is also revealing himself to his people. We'll see more about that. So they, he... Uh, the Pharaoh releases them, they cross the Red Sea, we'll talk about that in a minute, come to Mount Sinai, where God gives them his law. And this law is part of a, a covenant, we call it the Mosaic Covenant. At the base of Mount Sinai, he gives them, starts giving them the law, that's part of this covenant that deepens and broadens his relationship with Israel, building on the Abrahamic covenant, it's, it's making the, na- the people into a nation. And in that Mosaic law, he lays out his expectations of that elect nation. But this is where something important we want to understand is before he gave that law to a special nation, before chapter 20, we have chapter 19. That's a pretty profound observation, right? (laughs) So before he gave his law to this special nation, the Lord sought to make sure that his people understood their function in his worldwide purposes and giving this law was part of accomplishing that. He wants them to comprehend the significance of this covenant into which they're about to enter that involved the Ten Commandments and the following laws. He lays it on the line. He wants them to realize what's at stake, whether they obey or disobey this covenant. What is he trying to accomplish through this? There's more than one function, but this is the one I'm going to focus on here. Look to Exodus 19. Exodus 19. So in verse 4, they're at the base of Mount Sinai, the Mosaic Covenant hasn't been introduced. The Ten Commandments haven't been given. And he's speaking to them through Moses. This is what you must say to the house of Jacob. And explain to the Israelites, verse 4. You have seen what I did to the Egyptians. Ten plagues. Total power and sovereignty on God's behalf. Unparalleled. And now I brought you to myself on eagle's wings. How he carried you on eagle's wings and brought you to myself. He's reminding Israel of the punishment he brought against Egypt, that he, he accomplished their deliverance from Egyptian bondage. Moses is telling them that Israel's awesome God is totally exhaustively, completely, comprehensively responsible for their deliverance from Egypt in their arrival at Mount Sinai. Think about it, in Exodus 7 to 12, they narrow, those chapters narrate, God bringing the 10 plagues against the Egyptians. It clearly demonstrates his absolute power over most of the realms of the created world. Yahweh, their covenant Lord, caused the stubborn Pharaoh to release God's people out of Egypt. Look at, look at Deuteronomy 4, verses 32 to 34 sometimes. Don't do it now. I'm just going to say, look there. And they ask some rhetorical questions like, has this ever happened before? A God taking a nation out of another nation through an outstretched arm and a mighty hand, being the most powerful empire of the world at that time? Uh, no, God doesn't parallel things here. So clearly, the, the, the plagues demonstrate his power. He, he, he causes the Pharaoh to let God's people go in Exodus 14 and 15, paving the way for Exodus 19. We read this amazing account of God's miraculous intervention in history and nature to enable the Israelites to cross this body of water, the Red Sea, on dry ground. And part of the point of that precursor to Exodus 19 and following is that God is not coming to them as a stranger. No, he has made them as a people. He has redeemed them from bondage in Egypt. He has the relational credibility 
to demand lofty things from his people, their total loyalty, which is what this law does. And then in verses five and six, having affirmed what he's done on their behalf already, he says, verse five, here's Israel's responsibility. This is what obeying these requirements in a heartfelt way intended to accomplish. Now, if, there's an if-then statement here, if, conditioner, requirement, if, and then if you'll listen to me and carefully keep my covenant, then you'll be my own possession, kingdom of priests, holy nation. There's an if-then deal here. Uh, a conditioner requirement, a potential result, the first part, if you obey me and keep my covenant. This if-then statement explains the potential impact of this covenant and the laws that God provides. What, what covenant is he referring to here? Obey my covenant? Not the one back in Abraham's time. It's the one that's around the corner. Just the next, the next chapter. He's trying to lay the foundation, give them the rationale for what he's going to do there. Moses is God's tool to reveal that covenant to God's people. Ten commandments and a number of rules. So if you'll hear my voice and obey my covenant, this one I'm about to give you, then... Then of the if-then statement, the conclusion, the result of hearing his voice and obeying his covenant requirements is you will be to me these things. So the then introduces what living according to this yet-to-be-established covenant would accomplish. This is the big idea. Their, their obedience, their heartfelt loyalty to God's expectations, living according to God's standards would have three areas of impact, three realities that would be the result. A special treasure, a kingdom of priests, and a holy nation. Now, lots could be said here, but I'm just going to emphasize a core idea and then to try to spell them out quickly is that all three of these realities have a representative function. They show something to others, each other, in the watching world about who God is and what he does and his incomparable character. So the, the Mosaic Covenant does involve God giving clear covenant expectations or laws for his chosen people. There's lots of other things. It'd be fun to go down some rabbit trails, but I would be here till two. And I'm, I'm told there's a trap door here that opens up at a certain time, and I'd rather not you know, go down. No, that's not true. So but there's something else. I want to make sure I emphasize here, just to make sure we don't miss this, as I see in numerous Old Testament and New Testament passages, God has never, ever, ever been and will never, ever, ever be interested in empty, ritualistic, purely external obedience. He required heartfelt, heartfelt inside-out obedience all the time. And in this time, it was also required for them to accomplish his purposes. And so what did he try to want to accomplish through this? What's the then? If you hear my voice and obey my covenant, then? Well, the first one is, you'll be my own possession, my treasured possession out of all the peoples, although all the earth is mine. The term here refers to a possession that's treasured or cherished. In five of the other seven occurrences of this word in the Old Testament, it refers to Israel's privileged position as God's elect nation. They have a unique relationship with Yahweh, their covenant Lord. So as the one and only sovereign of the universe, the Lord regards Israel as his tre priceless treasure, even above all the other nations of the earth. Now let me just grab a trail here. It isn't that Israel is the best and everybody else is the worst. That's not the point. God has a plan to accomplish through them. And he's going to bring that to pass according to his intentions. And so in that regard, in carrying out that plan that God is going to bring to pass, that includes the Messiah and, you know, giving his word and other things. Israel is, is this unique relationship, and they're the ones with whom he's made the Abrahamic and now the Mosaic, and he'll give the Davidic covenant and the new covenant. And his point here is, as you think about this privileged position of God's elect nation, as the one and only sovereign God of the entire universe, God is giving this law to his people. And this makes them his treasured Possession. You see, their obedience, their heartfelt obedience to his requirements would be like a, a visible demonstration of the intimacy of them with their God. Think of this. 
Some of you have to think back longer, like me, married 42 years, others it may be more recent, but you remember, and you've seen this happen, the, the young lady, her, her, her boyfriend proposes to her and gives her a ring, and what does she do with her left hand for the next couple of days? She, it's kind of in her pocket, behind her back, under her arm. No, no, she's kind of like the old, you know, walking around, kind of trying to hold it so, you know, everyone will see it. <laughs> now, I'm not speaking from experience, because, yeah, that didn't happen to me. I gave it. Uh, but the, the, the issue is, is that that ring is emblematic. It's, it represents the, the intimacy that in the relationship they've reached, where they've made a commitment to each other to spend their lives together, to honor God as a couple, to try to love and serve him better together than they could apart. So this says something. It represents the depth of that relationship. And that's what God is saying. If you'll hear my voice and obey my covenant in a, heart, in a heartfelt way, as you obey me and live out biblical God's values... God's character, you're going to announce to the world, that's unparalleled. And that, that's totally unique. What's the deal? Well, there's this God in heaven who's transformed my life, who's given me the want to, to have a life that points to him because he's the best. And he's the one who provides salvation for you. And he, he provides encouragement and strength for you as fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. So treasured possession their heartfelt obedience to God's revealed expectations would demonstrate the depth and uniqueness of their relationship with the Almighty God. Their glad obedience to God's requirements would enable them to represent their great God to each other, as well as to surrounding nations in a very powerful way. It also says that if you'll hear my voice and obey my covenant, you'll be a treasured possession, but you'll also be a, my kingdom of priests. Now, God is not contradicting through Moses that he's going to set apart the tribe of Levi as a priestly tribe, but in the same way that priests render service to their God, Israelites, as God's elect nation, could carry out a special role on God's behalf. They could serve him. Priests commonly represent people to God and God to the people. And so they could represent God to each other as Israelites and to the surrounding world. The Lord desired that his chosen people would function as an effective instrument in his hands. He's, so he's going to give them this Mosaic covenant, the Mosaic law, the requirements just around the corner. They're obeying the Lord in a heartfelt way would result in God's people representing his surpassing character to each other as well as to the surrounding world. If priests represent God to the people in the, in the Old Testament... They're mediatorial. They're, they're standing in God's stead and offering these sacrifices that people are offering on the altar. They're doing it on God's behalf, but they are the representatives of God. He's saying that the nation in that functional sense can represent this awesome God to each other as Israelites into the surrounding world. A whole a, a kingdom of priests. And then third thing is a consecrated nation, a, a holy nation. If you hear my voice, keep my covenant, you'll be unto me a treasured possession a kingdom of priests, and a holy nation. The basic idea of holiness is to be set apart from what's sinful, from what's common, and the other side of the coin is consecrated for a special purpose. Now we're going to say more about that in First Peter, but as a set-apart nation, Israel was to, stand distinct, was to stand distinct from the other nations of the world. It wasn't just like weirdness. Yeah, I'm going to comb my hair totally from everybody else just to be different. No, it isn't like random Weirdness. It's saying that I want you to live in a way that's distinct from the world around them in, in, in a way to, that obeys my requirements because it points to who I am. And, and, and I can't go into it here, but in the, in the ancient Eastern world, a God who cared about his people and a God who wanted to clearly reveal his intentions to his people was unheard of. You can read every ancient Eastern myth that's out there, and you're going to find out that they didn't, have, they didn't care one bit about a relationship with their subjects, they wanted them to feed him. They wanted them to feed him. And then they, they, they weren't interested in providing guidance on how to, how to act in a way that would please him. No, they're, they're in the dark. And God wants his people to have this treasure possession relationship, kingdom of priests function, as, and, and part of that would involve being a holy nation. They're to pursue holy lives, not to put the focus on them, they were to pursue holy lives 
to put there and everybody else's focus on this awesome God they were trying to live according to his character. By obeying the covenant demands, God's chosen people would direct the attention of each other and other nations to the surpassing character of the great God. Now I'm going to move on. Let's look to God's desire for the church. 1 Peter 2.9. So, Christ's ministry has passed, died, rose again, ascended to God's right hand, the apostles preached the word, church established, spreading throughout the world. First Peter, Peter writes his first epistle to Christians scattered throughout Asia Minor, our modern Turkey. He encourages believers to live a life that points to their marvelous salvation regardless of the troubles they face. He lays a doctrinal foundation where he describes the priceless and enduring nature of their salvation. He describes how believers should live holy lives, loving the brethren, growing in Christ. And then in verses 4 to 10 of chapter 2, he concerns himself with a believer's identity. And to the, peep, to the question, who are we? Peter responds, you are the people of God. In verse 9, we're going to look as part of that development of his answer, you're the people of God, and this is what it involves. And it's interesting what he does here in this in this verse, he draws three phrases from Exodus 19, 5, and 6, and one from Isaiah 43, 20 to 21, to make a point. Now, he uses terms that are used to describe the nation of Israel to, to describe the church. Now, just short statement, what's the point of having those terms being used in both settings? It isn't to say that the church has replaced Israel. It's to say that that, that each occupy their own period of time in past and present history, but God has that purpose to accomplish with them both, and they have a shared identity, a shared divinely given function. And guess what that function is? To represent God, to show each other in the world around them who God is. So God desires to bring glory to himself through the church and each individual Christian in the church, just as he sought to do that with the nation of Israel in Old Testament times. Whether it happened or not, at a national level in Old Testament times isn't the point. We learn about God's value system. We learn about what God's trying to accomplish. And that gives us a picture of what he's asking of us. So Peter summarizes the church's identity with four phrases, and then he's going to talk about how that should impact the way they live. So you're a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his possession, that's their identity. That's who we are in Christ. And then the church's function in Christ, what God wants to accomplish through us, so that you may proclaim the praises of the one who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. So let's go through the church's function, or the, the church's identity in Christ, who we are. Four, four phrases. How you're a chosen race, a chosen people. It, uh, this race term, race piece of people, is not a political term, it's a family term. Uh, a race where people have a common ancestor they descend from, and they're part of a family that, where they have connections with people horizontally. They're related to each other. Well, through Jesus Christ, Christ followers call God their Father. We're related to each other as brothers and sisters in Christ, saved by the same death, burial, resurrection of Christ. Peter writes also that we're not just a family with a, a heavenly Father, we're also a chosen or elect family, people, race. And the point of that is, is not that Paul, Peter is commending them for being so good that God chose them. There's no merit. No, he's saying we can't comprehend the grace and mercy of our great God because he chose someone as vile and unworthy as you and me. He took the initiative in our salvation. Being a chosen people isn't a pat on your back time. It's like a rejoice for God's grace and mercy time. Because of no merit of our own, God chose us to be his followers. He made us part of his family. That's who we are. We're a chosen race. He also made us a royal priesthood or a priesthood belonging to the king. Two quick observations. The body of Christ in which you and I are members belongs to God. Is the priesthood belonging to the king. In Christ, we enjoy a unique closeness to God. He's our heavenly father. By means of Christ's blood, praise God, we have direct access to him in our prayer. As those who belong to the body of Christ, we belong to him. 
And you know the verse, 1 Corinthians 6, 19 and 20. Don't you know that your body is a sanctuary of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God? You are not your own. For you are bought at a price. Therefore glorify God in your body. So, and, and so he's saying here that as this kingdom of priests, one, one thing is, is that we belong to him. In the greatest service we can render to God, pursuing lives that exalt his incomparable character, that we represent him to each other and to the watching world, is connected to our belonging to him. This is what goes with being part of his family, being redeemed, being bought. And the second observation is, as priests, we're each to render service to our great God. Now, I talked about this some, and I'm running out of time, so let me just emphasize the point here is that we need to represent God to each other and to the world in the way we live, in the way we serve. And the various passages I can give you that I have in the notes that I'm skipping over, where passages use priestly language to describe our ministry and our evangelism. Right, even look, look back sometime at verse, I think it's verse 5 of chapter 2. For you yourselves as living stones are being built into a spiritual house for a holy priesthood to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. He's trying to emphasize a term they would not understand. I mean, these are Jews and Christians, but they would understand priestly activity and representing God and serving. And he wants them to grasp this is part of their identity. God has called them to be his own, bought them. He calls them to render service to him, manifest his glory, represent him before each other in the watching world. Holy nation, the third one. Again, drawing on Exodus 19.6. Even earlier in 1 Peter, he said, be ye holy as I am holy. Peter is careful to point out that the church is in a holy, holy nation, holy people, stand, supposed to stand distinct from the other nations of the world. It was Israel's consecration to their powerful God that was essential to their distinctiveness. They weren't run-of-the-mill. They weren't like every other ancient race or nation. They were supposed to be a nation whose eyes were on this awesome God and their longing was to live in a way that honored his name, to be distinctive. Yes, it involves avoiding sinful practices for sure, and I'm trying to rush here, but when we think about holiness, is one of those cases where the Old Testament really helps us understand holiness fuller, in a fuller way. Appropriately, when we think about holiness, we think of moral purity first, which is huge, and I'm not trying at all to diminish the importance of that. But in the Old Testament, we see that the other side of the coin is separation from what is common or consecration to God's use alone. With the table of showbread, altar of incense, those weren't just you know, moved in from the, from the storage shed every week. It wasn't like just casual stuff. It's like maybe your Christmas china or something that's only used for certain periods of time. It's set apart for special use. Holiness involved a life that is distinct because it's pulled out of normal circulation. It isn't a run-of-the-mill life. It isn't a, like everybody else in California life. It's a life that is defined by God with his priorities. Be holy as I am holy. Be distinct, totally consecrated, in a way of drawing attention to God's character. It just is as we decide how we're going to spend our time, energy, and money, do we, do we just consider seriously how this will impact the distinctiveness of our witness? Am I asking how can God most effectively make use of who he's made me to be, because that's a priority to me? Career, ambitions, desires, actions, attitudes... Is this a key category? So the punchline here is, as part of this holy nation, is my distinctive witness making an eternal impact for God's glory? A number of years ago, my second son, Mark, was goofing around with a calculator at the table, and he asked me how old I was, and then he told me I'd lived so many days. Well, thank you. I appreciate that. Well, right now, that stands at about 23,845 days. To let you know, so you don't have to try to pull out the calculator, I'm just over 65 years old. I'm older than dirt. No, but what really struck me at that time at the kitchen table with my son Mark and the calculator, even more so today, is that I have less days ahead of me than that to live in service to my Lord and to have some kind of an eternal impact. 
Yeah, one of the prayers for my heart and for my life and my wife and my kids is that we would live eternally significant lives. Not that I'm a big dog, not that I'm a small fish in a big pond, but I want to make sure that my life includes things that aren't just momentary, but are long-term. So as citizens of this holy nation, God calls us to be set apart to our God, manifest a distinctive witness that will draw the unsaved to the Savior, to serve, to encourage our brethren to serve our Lord more effectively. And then peculiar people, people belonging to God, Isaiah 43 is where this is pulled from, where the prophet Isaiah writes about Israel, as God says, my chosen, the people I formed for myself. It's like that special treasure in Exodus 19.5. Paul wrote to the Ephesian elders that they were bought with his own blood. We're a special possession. So that's our identity in Christ, chosen race, royal priesthood, kingdom of uh, priesthood belonging to the king, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. What's, the, what's God's intention with that identity? What does God want to accomplish through us? It says here, so that, he, we, that you may proclaim the praises, the praiseworthiness of the one who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. What are God's praises? This word occurs three other times to signify moral excellencies, those things that God is worthy of praise for, his excellence and character. But it's interesting in the immediate context, this very verse, it tells us there's something more in view. We're supposed to show forth the, the moral excellencies, the surpassing character of the God who's done nothing. Well, no. It's of the God who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. It's, it's who he is and what he does that we're supposed to put on display, right? And so the praises of him involves God's character, his activity. What does it mean to show forth God's praises? It's the verb is to tell out, to make widely known. We're to be living, living advertisements of God's character and saving work on our behalf. We must function as God's representatives, representing him before the watching world. And this is one of the tough questions we must ask ourselves. What does the world know? about who God is and what God does by looking at your and my lives. Are we directing their attention to the God of gods? The Lord of lords and King of kings. And again, I could say more here, but this isn't just by life, as important as that is, to have a life that doesn't take away from the message of the gospel, but it has to be through mouth. And I'm not great at this, right? 99.8% of my time is with believers. That doesn't excuse me. I asked people to pray that I would evangelize, that I would be a witness to the world, that I would see the world as God sees it, because we all need to speak the gospel built on a life that honors his name. So Paul, is this message for believers scattered throughout the world of the New Testament, that God has given us an identity, chosen people, royal priesthood, holy nation, treasured possession. He has given us this identity for a specific purpose, he intends that we show forth his praises in life and by lip to the world around us, function as his representatives. And so, let me ask you this. I could summarize all the passages, but let me just get to the, the big issue. I'm asking myself this question too. Are we doing what God wants with our identity? If you're here as a Christ follower, you have this identity, and you also have this calling. I have it. Are we making his praises widely known by means of the witness of our life and our lips? In a word, are we truly functioning as his representatives? And I'm not telling you anything new. I'm, I'm speaking this to my own heart and life. I've been asking God to help me to be shaped by this too each day. When I think about cultivating this mindset of representing God through my life, I don't think just a far off four corners of the world opportunities. I'm burdened to bring the gospel of God to the four corners of the world. But when I'm thinking about this, I don't start way out there. I start at the core of my life. And this is kind of the how. How can you might do that in your own daily life? I, I think of my sweet wife, Martha Ann. What has Martha Ann learned about who God is by the way I love and pursue her? Am I a spiritual 
encouragement or a millstone around her neck? Of course, wives, you can also be an encouragement to your husbands as you think about how you can point to God's character and the way you love and come alongside your husband, your beloved. What about our children? What kind of a picture of our great God are we giving? Am I giving my children? Are you giving your children as we care for, guide, and shepherd them? Are we creating a thirst in their hearts for salvation and growth? Or is it like, I'd rather be dirt than have that? Or start close to home. And even what about our brothers and sisters in Christ here at church? Are we, through our interaction with each other, are, how do we encourage each other and even challenge each other with evidences of kindness and mercy and love and humility and other aspects of the character of God? Are we, are we representing God well? Not perfectly for sure, but well in a way that points to him. And that's part of provoking one another to love and good works. And it goes out, out further on those circles. So to wrap up, Think about the importance of this issue. We live in the midst of a world that has desperate spiritual needs. We're surrounded by people with an abundance of hurts, but no long-term or satisfying solution. We live in a world that shakes its fist in the face of God. And it's into that darkness that God wants us to bring light, to represent him. Who will be his torchbearers, his lighthouses, his flashlights, to dispel that darkness? Who will pursue with diligence this task of making God big in our world, both near and far? God's word very clearly says to us this morning, if you're part of God's family, he's called you to be his representative. And so I just challenge you as I challenge myself, I try each day to think that through. Lord, help me through your spirit to be much more than I can be on my own, help me to do more than I could do on my own, to have a life that points to you. May my Chrysanthi be a, a nobody, but my Heavenly Father be an everybody. So may God help you and me to bring glory to his name. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for the power of your word and for using cracked clay vessels to speak it. I pray that you've hid your servant behind the cross and that you to bring your word to bear. I do ask you to help us to grasp this lofty challenge, an important challenge that you've, that's Bible-wide, to represent you well, to live lives that point to you in a way that encourages and blesses and challenges those near to us and those afar off. And so, Lord, we thank you that you are more interested than we could be in accomplishing this in our lives. And I pray that you'd give us that passion and give us strength each day to be your representatives. In Jesus' name, amen.